independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Wilderness is a, is a good way to problematize our relationships with, with the past, with other peoples, with each other, with the natural world. And to recognize there is no wilderness. There are only cultural landscapes. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to holistic healing, ecological regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. This is a community-backed show, so if you're learning from us and find our work valuable, we kindly ask for your direct support today, if you can, at patreon.com slash greendreamer or at greendreamer.com slash paypal. Mark David Spence, our guest today, is a historian who's centered his work on environmental history, American Indian history, the history of the American West, and the history of national parks, which will be the focus of our discussion here as we go into how the establishment of national parks in the so-called United States was at odds with and opposed to the interests of the peoples native to those lands, how the idea of national parks in of itself and the name as national treasures blessed onto the country holds meaning for most Americans today in ways that are just meaningless to the original peoples of these lands who have their own rich cultural histories and origin stories tied to place and so much more. So Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. So, of course, your book, Dispossessing the Wilderness, really challenges this social construct of the pristine wilderness. So can you take us through how this concept came to be and why it's really a false and perhaps colonial idea? I guess it's a real idea. It's a false consciousness might be how I'd put it. There's a lot of intersecting cross currents going on. And one is sort of the romanticism of, of Europe, where people would you know, landscapes of the Alps and things like that. And Americans had always had, certainly into the mid-19th century, had a real chip on their shoulder. It's like, well, what makes us amazing? We know we're amazing. What makes us amazing? What's going to, who will take note of us? And in a sense, the wilderness landscapes of the Rocky Mountains, as painted initially by Europeans and then, and then also by American artists, became sort of a visual symphony of the grandeur, potency, and, and aesthetic loveliness of the continent. And underlying that is this other notion that we are the land that sustains us. And so this stuff is beautiful, it's gorgeous, it's powerful. We are beautiful, we're gorgeous, we're powerful. And by the way, we have great cultural resonance in, in Europe, thanks to, thanks to these, these mountains and, and wide open places. But the sort of the most fictive aspect of wilderness is that it, it needs to present itself as creation, as sort of primordial, which is to say pre-human in a way. 
And these landscapes had to be cleared of the people that had literally been shaping them for countless generations, hundreds of generations, and had been also shaped by those landscapes. Their, their conception of themselves, their conceptions of how the world is supposed to work, their connections to past generations, their, their connections to future generations, were all embedded in these landscapes. None of this resonated with, with Americans at all. They wanted a trophy landscape. And then by the late 19th century, they wanted a playground landscape. They wanted to, they could get on a train, travel out there. And so by the late 19th century, these became industrial landscapes. Wilderness, as we understand it, for the most part, means nothing outside of a consumerist, industrial, capitalist concept. Because you've got a, it's a place where you go and go away to. Where you live is nowhere. Wilderness is the place you want to go to. That's a that might, that's a bit of a long ramble, on, but that's uh, that's how, that's what makes it nationalistic. Especially, it's it becomes uh, this unique American identifier. So I'm wondering, did the early colonizing settlers know that those beautiful landscapes had been actively managed and shaped by the indigenous peoples that they were displacing, or did they literally not connect the dots there? They well, they knew native peoples burned fires. They generally didn't understand why, and the reasons were basically to to sustain certain plant uh, populations, grasses, sedges, shrubs, and and also to keep woodlands down so you had wide open woodlands that you could move through, and also game could move through. Beautiful book by a woman named Cat Anderson. The front title is called "Tending the Wild." They were tending these landscapes. Native peoples were. And tourists don't want to show up and have smoke blowing in their faces. They didn't understand it. They just thought it was barbaric and aberrant behavior. Why would you burn anything so beautiful? And and for several decades, not realizing that what Americans considered beautiful only existed because of, of purposeful fires. The first landscape painters, though, in the United States were operating in the Berkshires and the Adirondacks. and they were very off in the 1820s, 30s, and I guess even to early 1840s. What they were doing, ironically, was painting Native peoples into the landscape that weren't there anymore. And they put them in sort of bizarre costumes because they didn't know what, what the people actually looked like. But this association with wild people and wild landscapes actually kind of resonated. It was It was a chance to have sort of, you know, romantic stories about women that throw themselves off of waterfalls because their lover has gone to war and hasn't come back, or, you know, they're sort of creating these, these, these funky fictions. But up until the 1830s, people were aware enough that these were native landscapes, that they wanted them in there, at least at the level of entertainment value. And I guess to, to insert an additional dimension of wild, but these are primarily regional. Um, this is a regional aesthetic, not a national aesthetic at the time. And, and I'll say one last thing. The one person I'm aware of from the 1830s that paid attention to native burning was Henry David Thoreau. He, he was in over his head when he was trying to understand native peoples, but that was one thing he, he figured out without having to be told. Mm. It's interesting because, of course, the early colonizers had this sense of human supremacy 
in order to justify the ways that they extracted and exploited the land. Mm -hmm. But in the English language, when people talk about, you know, when people associate humans with animals, which humans are animals, but it's sort of used in a demeaning way, whereas Mm -hmm. indigenous peoples understand that animals are our relatives, plants are our relatives. So it's sort Mm -hmm. of it's not a degrading view of the self, but it's an honoring of all these living species that are here on earth with us. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And indigenous conceptions of time as well extend much, much further forward and backward than, than people of the last couple centuries in, in North America. And so there, I mean, there are, their relations are infinite in time and in variation. Put it that way, because we're all, we're all manifestations of creation. And 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 the way I generally put it wasn't said to me by native peoples, but I learned through conversation that, that creation is not an event. Creation is an ongoing process. Mm. So your book covers the history of the establishment of various national parks, including Yellowstone, Glacier, Yosemite, and so on. Can you share some of these stories so we can get an idea of the contention between Native peoples and non-Indians through this so-called environmental movement? The first national park on Earth was Yosemite, and essentially Yosemite Valley at the time, as well as Hetch Hetchy Valley, which is another valley to the north, started as a state park by the state of California. The word discovery as applied to Yosemite was from a militia that that had gone up to go kill the people who lived in Yosemite Valley under the presumption that they were harassing gold miners further further downstream, in the foothills as opposed to up in the mountains. This is in the 1850s. And by the 1860s, these romantic notions that I was telling you about, sort of this, this... magnificent grandeur of the place led people to want to establish, um, to create a park that could not become private property. In a sense, the primary definition of a national park is that it's, it's public land. It can never be owned by anybody. It can only be owned by the public broadly. Well, also the public narrowly defined, which is to say tourists and, and consumers of images of the place. As Yosemite develops, it's the primary sort of aesthetic or or even spiritual approach to the place was that it was sublime. And the sublime is basically a man, the term sort of means a manifestation of the divine, sort of this exquisite, you know, transportive beauty that just takes you to some, some other place where you feel like you're touching the divine and the divine is touching you. And that becomes sort of the template of how people experience national parks. They're sublime landscapes over, I guess I'm going to skip forward in time, but over time, actually not much time, but that sublimity gets reified in the concept of the nation. We, we are such a blessed nation that the divine has chosen to create this eruption of the sacred into the world and it's our world and it's ours to see and we all own it. And so it, it is, it does become extraordinarily proprietary and it functions in a cultural context that would have no meaning to native peoples. And I'll, I'll just talk about Yosemite for one more anecdote. 
you're familiar with the images of Half Dome, I'm sure, or the place it's, or the, the feature itself. Mm-hmm. So if you look at a famous painting of that, a uh, photograph of that by Ansel Adams from the 1930s forward, it looks like this amazing abstract art, the, the picture he takes, um, you know, view of Half Dome with, with the moon rising behind it is sort of this famous black and white illustration of it. And that's exactly how Ansel Adams saw it. He was sort of this modernist photographer taking pictures of the quote-unquote natural landscape and looking at its abstract characteristics. And even the name of the thing is totally bon- It's just, it's half dome. It's just like it was once round and now there's only half of it left. The Awanichi in Paiute, who lived in and continue to, to live near Yosemite Valley, had a different name for it. It wasn't abstract art. They had a name for it. And it was called Tusiak. And Tusiak was, she was married to a man uh, and they, they were likely Paiute or Awanichi. The Awanichi came up from the California side. The Paiute came from the Nevada side. They got in a terrible argument and she was carrying acorn burden baskets, which are sort of these long conic things that you would carry on your back. And she got in an argument with her husband. Um, he was mad at her because she had drunk up all the water in the valley. So this is sort of, you know, uh, mystical proportions of a story. And he was thirsty and he hit her. And so she hit him with one of her burden baskets. And he instantly froze and became uh, several smaller domes right across the canyon from Half Dome. And she became Half Dome. And all those black streaks are her tears because she is so, she's so sad for what happened. She's ashamed for what happened, but, you know, however you want to interpret that. So for Native peoples, Half Dome is not abstract art. Half Dome is a story about how a marriage can go wrong, how a marriage should work. It's a story about regret for wrong action. Totally different than Half Dome. Mm. And, uh, and Yosemite is full of, you know, you know, people have tallied up stories associated with it in the hundreds. And it's probably, at one point, there were probably a thousand. It's an encyclopedia is what it is. It's an encyclopedia of culture. It's not space. It's not aesthetic void for Native peoples. So, I mean, just imagine how, for example, environmentalists who do not have place-based relationships to these landscapes might see these places getting destroyed, but feeling that hurt, a lot of it coming from understanding the more ecological aspects of how that is devastating. But imagine having so much of your rich cultural history actually tied to those places and having that be destructed and destroyed. I just feel like there's there's so much deeper meaning that isn't mm-hmm. really showcased or included in how we value the earth today. It hasn't translated certainly into economic value, but even beyond that, it hasn't translated into something that most other people without those same relationships have been able to experience and embody. I I agree and I think I think it's actually what you're describing is a very dangerous headspace, which is, and I'm not going to get all, you know, tear down the machine uh, right now, but 
it's a headspace where any living thing can be commodified. Any living thing is sort of has a tremendous plasticity. It, I don't care where it is. I don't care that it belongs where, where it is, but I can make it into something that will help me where I am. You know, whether that be oil in North Dakota, oil in Canada, lumber, all these sorts of things. I mean, the, the commodification of nature, you could put it another way, is to remove it from cultural narrative. It is just, it, be, it goes from embodiment to material. And that's it. Mm. I think the appeal of national parks is national parks have created a mythos that people buy into that's quite different from where they live. And so they sort of bring that mythos home. I, you have ownership of Yosemite or, or Glacier National Park or Yellowstone simply because you visited it and it's it's and you're you're the public that it's for you know other than that you know the surrounding mountainsides and the like are all um, that are outside the parks have been wide open to industrial extraction and but those are landscapes that native peoples would not have distinguished from the lands on the, on the other side of the park boundary i moved out to the city the vultures followed me praying on my weakness like it was a disease times it brought me to my knees brought me to my knees so i walked into the desert fighting through the heat searching for the answers that i can't seem to see tired of who they're wanting me to be wanting me It seems like there were a lot of socially constructed ideas that were just placed directly on top of this landscape and this land that had so much already going for it, but just completely replaced all of what was already happening. And mm -hmm. I mean, I'm guessing the answer is yes, but are the Native struggles revolving around national parks and their rules of what is legal versus illegal, even for people indigenous to those bases, are these struggles ongoing today? And have any amends been made to undo some of the historical injustices and land grabs? They're accelerating today, but I'm going to throw in a, a sort of a pre-grounding caveat. And I mean, my, my focus on national parks, I guess the value I apply to it is, is I'm dealing with iconic landscapes to, to Americans. And, and therefore, they're, they're so embedded with, with expectations and, and, and assumptions and desires that if you can problematize the concept of wilderness for non-Indigenous people, wilderness is a, is a good way to problematize our relationships with, with the past, with other peoples, with each other, with the natural world, and to recognize there is no wilderness. There are only cultural landscapes, you know, outside of frozen north pole and and as you were you know as you were saying earlier sort of you know indigenous people have these connections going all over the place whether it's you know other species other time periods future past or you know people with similar languages far away all these sorts of things they have a very live and you know even with all the decimation they've got a very live and vibrant and intensely embedded understanding of these places so I don't, you know, 
taking on national parks isn't necessarily going to make the world taking on the, the problems of national parks isn't going to make the world a better place, but I think it, it, it invites people to, to enter that. But you've got, you know, the Dakota Access Pipeline protests, people protesting the rapes and killings of Native women on the Mandan Hadatsa Rikura Reservation and other reservations uh, that are very close to oil patches where you sort of literally just have a gold rush of it's sort of gold rush level violence, gold gold rush level pathologies suddenly surrounding or, or even in the midst of indigenous communities. So their national parks are kind of a smaller piece of those more intense issues within Indian country. But there's more and more and more interest in it. I'll give you two anecdotes if if that's if that's okay. Mm-hmm. So for the Blackfeet, uh, and actually, the uh, the Kootenay on, on the west side of Glacier National Park, they know those lands inside and out, and they're named like crazy. And their their languages are still fairly vital that they're able to to sort of understand these places as much as as their great great grandparents would have. And Glacier National Park was basically taken from uh, through your your typical illegal treaty, which is you know things were not discussed, promises were not fulfilled. And native peoples were forced uh, to stay away from the mountains. And then when that became a national park, that becomes an even tighter issue. And the National Park Service becomes, in a sense, an instrument of an instrument for wealthy tourists who want to go see the mountains, but also really an instrument of the Bureau of Indian Affairs of, and we will keep native peoples out of this place. A similar instance happened in, in Yellowstone, the other park I talk about. And we may be on the edge of transformation right now, but in 1895, a, uh, a man named Lone Wolf, who was from a Shoshonean group in Idaho, left a small reservation called Fort Hall to go down across Yellowstone to get to Jackson Hole to hunt elk, which is people had been doing since as long as there had been humans and elk in proximity of each other. And he was arrested by the sheriff of Jackson County. And he said, I have a treaty right to come here. This, these are in the lands we ceded, but reserved rights to use. And so that case went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, on the same day that they, cho- that they voted for Plessy v. Ferguson, which is blacks are separate, and by the same vote decided, no, the Shoshone and no Native peoples have any rights to hunt in present state of Wyoming. Anyway, to flash forward to 2020, that case was finally overturned by the Supreme Court this year. And it was basically everything that the Supreme Court was saying held in 1895 is what this Supreme Court said, no, there's no, there's no way that you could ever interpret any of these treaties as saying these people cannot hunt on public lands within their traditional domain. And that was, and so I don't know where that's going to go, but it is, it's a big win for native peoples that, that have to confront now, that have to sort of have national parks also be their neighbors. So the field of environmentalism in the U.S. has traditionally consisted of mostly white men. And I wonder if this is not due to the fact that other people, specifically indigenous peoples, did not care for the land or have extensive built knowledge about her, 
but just that they understood ecology through different lenses, not through the lens of separation, drawing borders, and creating off-limit zones needing protection that lead to our modern ideas about, for example, urban sprawl or human settlement being harmful Mm -hmm. to quote-unquote wildlife, but rather because Native peoples understood the environment through the lens of oneness and embodiment so that there would not have been a separate field of study specifically on environmentalism because it's just inherently one part of the greater whole of indigenous health and rights. Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, to go back to the first metaphor you were referencing, I would say, you know, Native people's understanding of the spaces they inhabit or share with, um, you could just call it consanguinity, which is relations, you know, this sort of, we're all related by blood one way or another. And you don't need to delineate that through various family trees or species lines or, or radia from, from, you know, original species. But on the other hand, you know, a lot of their stories, a lot of stories involve some stingy person or some stingy deity who decides to block a river or remove some particular, you know, or or hide the animal somewhere, something like that, so that the people will starve. I don't, I'm not going to try to fathom what some of those stories, where those stories might have originated. But there's a hyper awareness that we can't take resource use to its limits. We, We need a broad buffer, because we live in very dynamic, very dynamic landscapes, where migrations of of animals and uh, or even the uh, the health of various vegetation could shift with a you know with a pronounced long change in, in climate and I'm talking about 500 years ago 200 years ago and not just today so there's there's that as well of native peoples build a lot of insurance put it that way into their resource extract into the way they use resources that did change though when um, animal parts became commodities for, uh, for Americans and, and, and Europeans in Canada. And Native peoples lost uh, elements of their material culture and replaced them with, with metal weapons and, and firearms and the like. And so in order to stay in their homelands, they actually had to start playing by these very um, destructive uh, processes of basically of killing animals for a marketplace. Right. And as we're speaking about, you know, what do we really need to realize a healthier and more sustainable future for everybody? I almost wonder if it's not enough to just, for example, substitute this practice with that land practice or, you know, substituting this thing with that. But it has to go so much deeper than that to addressing all of these social constructed systems that we created and forced everybody onto, but that we all, or most people in the dominant culture, take them as the norm or just how things work, if we have to undo all of that. And that's kind of at a psychological level inside of us. Very very much so. And I think one way that national parks have been presented, and and the Park Service has been kind of uh, defensively creative over time, as, okay, we will be the place where people can learn about ecology since everything else is screwed up. But I guess my, <clears throat> my wish, in a sense, would be to go to a national park 
is not to go as a shareholder in the in the public of the public domain, but as a visitor. And um, so go to approach it first as, with humility, but second to to sort of better understand all the connective processes from minerals, uh, animals, plants, and the like. And then get a recognition of sort of how how strangely abstract it is for you know, just how we get pork on the plate. You know, all these animals are, you know, you, you wipe out a prairie and you throw corn on it and it's sort of low grade corn. And then you stuff pigs with corn, very intelligent animals and turn them into food that gets shipped through thousand miles away. I mean, it's just this, we, we have really no conception of energy cycles in this world in large part because fossil fuels does so much work for us. And so we just, we just magically move around the highway. I'm not being clear, but what I am trying to say <laughs> is there is a, there is a place for national parks, but for that place to be useful and effective, we have to view parks differently, not, not as playgrounds, but as, um, and it's, I guess, sort of labs for for recognizing how far you can push something before it really starts to unravel. Overall, through unlearning this whitewashed history of environmentalism and understanding its roots in the dispossession of Native peoples, mm-hmm. what should we walk away with these realizations? And how can we use it to better understand what sustainability means and what we need to do to achieve it? Two things come to mind, and one is the notion of, you know, nationalizing nature, that these become our, these become landscapes that somehow express who we are. And I think that's a good, it's kind of a good thing to unlearn. I mean, for a long time, national parks, when I was little, they would sort of show up on TV. I think when I was really tiny, before we even owned a TV, people at the end of the night when the broadcast signed off, they would play the Star Spangled Banner, but it was essentially to a slideshow of national parks. And um, so this, this, this nationalism of parks was very, uh, there was really no space between the two of them. I mean, just the, actually to me, the most important word in the, fra- in the phrase national park is national. These are, ba- these are sort of trophies of expansion and they are places to to learn the American catechism, what we're supposed to support, what we're supposed to love, and what we're supposed to enjoy about what this country allows us to do. God, boy, I sound bitter. (laughs) Those are are just the, you know, but I've got my mother's Irish laugh after each one of those. And um, the other thing, though, I think is a term that I've been wrestling with only because I don't know how to define it. Uh, it was about 10 years ago, I finished a, a book-length project for the National Park Service on Redwood National and State Parks up in the far northwest of California. And I want to revise it, take it away from the, um, the stipulations that the Park Service wanted that is sort of some of the sort of the bureaucratic components. And I want to get the term ancient futures into the title, which in a sense doesn't make any sense because ancient is supposed to be long ago. And I think that 
you know, when we say, and, and especially now there's like this fetishization of, of the ancient as people wanting to figure out what's their, what are their genetic origins, you know, finding these long, long buried things just because there's so much development going on or floods or climate change. And all of a sudden you're finding cities and icons and the like, and you know, how old is the planet and these sorts of issues. And I said, well, the most important thing is how long will we continue? And it's, it's not how long we've been here, but um, we're here now. And the most important thing we can do is be an effective pass through to the future. I'm far more concerned, far more concerned about people seven, 14, 30 generations beyond me than I am about people from five or eight or 12,000 years ago. I mean, I, I'm very interested in them, but that's my, my job is to honor them, but also to pass through past antiquity into, into an ancient future, one that will go and go and go and go. And in a sense, sort of, you know, red, you know, if we lose redwood forests, we will have lost forests of, you know, that are many, many thousands of years old trees, some trees that are nearly a thousand years old and just eliminating them from anyone's experience in the future. And so that's why I want to apply that, that term. And, and there's very strong resurgent indigenous communities up in Northwest California as well. And they are working to restore rivers, uh, landscapes, develop harvestable levels of, of traditional foods and the like. And if they can pull that off and make it go and it can sustain for thousands and thousands of years forward, we have a chance. We really have a chance. With all your tone and tattered clothes And you find yourself wandering down a dark and lonely road When you've got a feeling in your heart that no one seems to know Feeling like a complete unknown I'm a rebel What is an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Probably Leslie Marmon Silko's Ceremony. I strongly recommend it. It, take, it would take a lot of time to read. It's, she's a Laguna Pueblo author, and she's writing about somebody in that community who, who actually had to go through the, uh, the Philippine Death March and sort of how he's trying to reintegrate mind, spirit, and communities through sort of ceremonies and story and the like. The stuff I really like reading these days, I'm Métis by background, uh, which is multiple indigenous peoples and, and Scottish, that's the Spence part. And uh, in Canada, I, I come from basically a long, very, very long fur trade family from Canada that was uh, moved to Oregon back in the 1840s. And so I'm reading a lot of borderland studies by Canadian scholars, and they're just leaps and bounds ahead of anybody else in um, certainly in the Americas. And I guess even in, in Europe in a way mm. of, of what it means to be distinct and rapidly changing peoples in a world that's shifting and that, that is run on, on the terms of nation states, as opposed to, you know, less abstract 
principles of place and, and community. What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? Before I get tired of the world, I, I pretty much just tell myself that life is incessant and creation is ongoing. What makes you most hopeful for our world at the moment? There's scholars, I would say, in their late 20s right now that are, have just, they're taking older scholarship and, and, and pushing it into, into, into some tremendous, tremendous ways. There's, there's a real, I mean, when I was doing my political protests and the like in college, there were just dozens of us. There was like hardly anybody. So I am, I am, I see an awakening. That's what I will say. And not just an awakening, an awakening joined with a curiosity that, that takes itself further and further. Well, we are coming to a close, but Green Dreamer, Mark's website is historycraft.com. He's on academia.edu as Mark D. Spence and on researchgate.net as Mark Spence. You can also follow him on Twitter at Mark David Spence and on Facebook with the same name. And again, his book that we discussed today is titled Dispossessing the Wilderness. Mark, thank you so much for being here and for this critical unlearning and relearning of environmentalism's roots. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I'm not going to say if you're breathing, you have work to do. But if you're breathing, you're still part of it all. So participate. Well, Green Dreamer, we've come full circle here. If our show has inspired you, we'd love to get your direct support at patreon.com slash green dreamer. That is what makes this show and our diverse range of topics explored that are very often left out of mainstream dialogues possible. So thank you so much to all of our past and current supporters and patrons. Today's intermission song featured is Rebel Soul by Ray Zaragoza. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell, and our production intern is Spencer Carter. And of course, I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I will catch you soon in the next episode.